Hello and welcome to GC Stories, the podcast where we speak to security services professionals with an extraordinary tale to tell. My name is John Watkins, the editor of Global Custodian, and in this series we've got custody, prime brokerage, all sorts of banking executives who have stories to tell. From former undercover police officers to ex-professional athletes, these truly are fascinating stories, and those who are telling them also have some amazing wisdom to impart. Particularly in times like this, I think it never hurts to listen to something inspirational and uplifting. I hope as many people listen to this while running, cooking, or in their downtime as they do during their working day. Now, before we get started, I'd just like to thank our partners in this project, SmartStream, the provider of transaction processing solutions and services to the financial community. They have been incredibly supportive of this series, just as they have with their own clients through this difficult period with the global pandemic. You know, their own story is one of stepping up when they needed to, reacting fast, being reliable, making sure their customers were prioritized during this period. So a big well done to SmartStream for informing and supporting the industry during this time, and of course, for their support of this series too. On today's episode, we have a man who turned the seemingly impossible into the possible. More people have been into space than achieve what he did. Seven marathons in seven continents in seven days. Just let that sink in for a second. He is Scott Coey, who most recently worked at BNY Mellon as a managing director and head of EMEA business development, hedge funds, and structured products before leaving in September 2019. And outside of his professional life, he is an endurance racing specialist. Ironmans, marathons, still amazing achievements, but today we really dive into the 777 here, where he flew 24,000 miles, burnt 28,000 calories, and on less than three hours sleep a night, still managed an average time across all the races that would, well, most of us would dream of in a one-off race. Now, along with being a decorated athlete, he is someone who loves to open up sport for everyone. He's heavily involved in charity work and is an all-round nice guy, as I discovered. So on this episode, we talk through the 777 experience and what motivated Scott to take up the challenge, the causes he ran for, and he also gives us some motivation that will get you lacing up your running shoes by the end of the episode. Scott Curry, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. No worries. And we're recording this first thing in the uh, morning in the UK. And in my mind, you're the kind of guy that's already been up running 20K or you're going to finish this podcast and uh, you'll be straight out afterwards. Is that about right? Actually, a bit of both. A bit of early morning training before dropping the daughter back to school. And uh, my coach normally has me on two a day. So I've got a bike this morning, a bit of a run this afternoon. So yeah. Keeps me out of mischief. God, just just a bike in the morning and a run in the afternoon. Eh? It's supposed to be your downtime. You're already making me feel bad. <laughs> but it does lead us nicely to the first question. I mean, you're talking about going out a couple of times a day for exercise. Obviously, you're really involved in charity work, you know, your job, family time. How do you find time for all this? I mean, I guess you think you've sort of got to look at the planning of it, really. I mean, look, I train probably 10 to 15 hours a week, depending on what time of the season I'm in leading up to a race. And you know, effectively, that's a lot of early morning starts. That's uh, up on the bike in the in the man cave, as I call it, up here in, in the top floor of the house, training early in the mornings before so that I can get up and spend time with the family before heading to work. And then, um, yeah, in some instances, often I was working down the Canary Wharf, I'd integrate, you know, running from home into the into the wharf or, um, you know, back and forth. So you sort of just fit it around, try fit it around the day. But once you have a plan in place, I've actually found the structure during so I call it normal time as opposed to COVID-19 time, it's a lot easier to keep on track when you've got those exact deadlines of, you know, I've got to be at the office by eight, I've got this, I've got to do, et cetera. So it's, it's more about the planning. And once, you know, it's that, 
I, I coach a couple of people that do their first Ironman or their first marathon. And what I always say to them, it's just getting into that routine after the first month. Once you get past the first month, it becomes natural. And it's almost like you, um, you miss it if you don't do it. But that first month is always the hardest part when you start changing your routine. Yeah, tricky thing to do, like you said, but if you can turn your commute from train to running, I guess it just becomes as normal as when you used to get on the train and, and you get the benefits too. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Or you sort of like, you know, if you know, working down at the wharf, there was, if I would do an early morning swim set, I would do a swim set, say if I was at, you know, going to the Kennedy Wharf over at, say, Mile End because it's on the way in. So, yeah, you're starting at 5, 5.30, but if you get half your commute done, you know, and then, yeah. More often than not, you're, sit, you're still sitting at your desk before 8, 30, 9 a.m. And, and you've already got a workout under your belt. Because I actually find, and, and, and I'm pretty certain most people will, will know this being in our finance industry, is you don't get to control your day. So thinking you, or you don't get the opportunity to get out during the day for a run or a swim or something like that. So really, it is about the start of and the end of the day to get everything to get everything in around your training. The times I've left it, I thought, oh, no, I'll get out. Yeah, my diary gets away from me or, or work gets away from me and, and you just don't get to it. Yeah, and the training really is the bulk of it. I mean, we're, we're quick to talk about the race and I know you've been featured in the Evening Standard and some running magazines, but really the training is such a major part of it. Yeah, I'm sure. Like myself, most people uh, you know skip straight to how's the race. Tell us all about it. Um, you know, we uh, don't even don't even ask about the journey. But let, let's uh, let's do that to start with, though, um, Scott. You know, where where did this kind of uh, love for running and, and this journey for you begin? Yeah, look, I guess probably what happened is you know when growing up in Australia, you know, we have great weather most of the year living in North Queensland, and so I was very active out playing a lot of, a lot of sports. You know played half a dozen different sports at the equivalent of a county level out there, but it was just part of your natural lifestyle. And it was actually one of the big challenges I found coming across to the UK, coming getting off the boat from Australia in the end of the 90s was um, obviously the weather is completely different. You know, we, you didn't get as much sun over here as we do in Australia. The, you know, living in central London, everything was about memberships to clubs or tennis clubs or gyms and things like that. And, you know, I, I, my fitness fell off quite substantially. And I, I think I put on like 10, 15 kilos and, you know, um, arrived up here in November and didn't see the sun till June, July. And they call it the old Heathrow injection. You suddenly <laughs> turn around and you work out, can't work out where those 10 kilograms have come from you put on, which is basically food and beer and not exercising. So it took me a little while then. And I was fortunate enough that a friend of mine decided that, um, he wanted to run the New York Marathon and um, asked me to do it. And I, I hadn't run a marathon and that and that sort of got back into the training. And I, I still remember back to, you know, I was working at the London Stock Exchange at the time. I still remember back to going out for my first run and not being able to run 5K without stopping and, and breathing heavily and, and things like that. And, and it's that slow buildup that over those, you know, that long period of time going from a marathon to a triathlon and then to half Ironman and longer distance running over three or four years that, that led me to do my first Ironman in, in 2009. Yeah. Do you think you, even though you weren't necessarily into that kind of stuff before you came over to the UK, do you think your kind of, your mindset and the way you've got approached work, it was always something you could kind of see yourself doing these kind of tasks? Yeah, I guess I've always looked at, um, you know, looking at the things in my life and I look at, I've always had this ethos about, I have three buckets in my life. So my work bucket, my family bucket, and then selfishly my own bucket. And that would, that was always my sport or fitness or, or travel and stuff like that. And so I, I had a, I was having a great time here in London. I was, I was enjoying life traveling on Europe, but I, I felt like there was something missing and it went back to checking those three buckets to realize that 
that active lifestyle that I've had. And, and it's been very much a part of my life through my sport, but also through my other interests I do around work and sport was missing. And that was sort of the, the catalyst for me to get back in and start doing it. So it does become also, it's not just a physical thing, it's a mental thing as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to digging into the mental aspect of this later on. Something we'll come on to, especially talking about those oh, dark yeah. moments, Scott. Oh, yeah. um, but look, as impressive as the marathons and Ironmans are, and, and believe me, they are impressive. This podcast is all about the extraordinary and the 777 is something that really is unique and extraordinary. Uh, more people have been to space than have completed this. What an incredible statistic. Uh, Scott, could you please explain to us what the 77 is and whether you've ever been able to look at the number seven again in the same way? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the, like my journey through marathons and triathlons and Ironman and multi-day stage running that actually helped me find the 777 because the whole reason behind doing the race was I was raising money for charity um, for, uh, for for breast cancer charity called Breast Cancer Haven. But because I had done all these marathons and Ironman and everything before, finding, you know, finding something to do that people would donate money to was hard. I mean, basically, people come and said to me, and it, yeah, it's in the article in the magazine, and, and you can, I guess you can edit it out if you want. It says, someone said, unless you do something, unless you do some epic, we're not going to sponsor you because you go out and run a marathon on the weekend and don't even think twice about it. So my journey to the 777 was about searching for something that that, that met that category. Um, and I, I started off by finding the Antarctica Marathon. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I haven't been in, you know, it's a, on one of the continents. And then on the screen, there was this 777. And like all, like all, you know, long distance athletes, masochists, I clicked on it to see what it was all about. And I sort of hit on it. So it's it's run by a gentleman by the name of Richard Donovan, who's an Irishman who's up in Belfast, really great guy. And he had, he had um, devised this event, which was seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. So running a marathon on each continent, back to back to back, all the way through to seven over the space of under getting it completed under seven days from when the gun goes at the first one. And that I thought was going to be, I couldn't get much bigger than that. And, and that was, that's what led me to the race to then um, be able to you know, raise the money for the charity. And, and no one could argue that it wasn't epic enough to do something like that. So, Oh, you absolutely cannot argue that. I mean, this literally defines epic, doesn't it? Uh, look, Scott, the most boring question I'm going to ask you all day, or that anyone probably could ask you about this is, is around the logistics. Um, but I have to ask it because I mean, even if you tried to book seven uh, you know seven flights to seven continents in seven days without a marathon in the middle i mean that would be tough to do so how do you do it so so it, as i said i mentioned um, richard runs the challenge uh, the world marathon challenge um and he he helps organize it effectively everyone has to turn up in um port elizabeth in south africa by a certain date and then the marathons obviously go around the world and so from south africa we go to the first one in antarctica and then you literally go Antarctica, South Africa, Perth in Western Australia. Uh, we went to Dubai, crossed to Lisbon, down to Cartagena in South America, and then finished in South Beach. So that's the sort of the route you follow. Um, the logistics around it, other than, other than the first leg, which was the flight from South Africa down to Antarctica, which was done um, on a privately hired ex-Russian military plane because it needed to be a special plane to land on the snow and the ice in Antarctica. Everything else was then done by a chartered plane that 
you know, we went through domestic terminals and everything, but it was a charter plane that took all the athletes around. So it, it wasn't a public flight schedule. So we were able to have a little bit of flexibility about that. But, you know, again, at the end of the day, you are just doing the travel from continent to continent. I think over the, I think I worked out over the space of the week from the start of the race to my finishing the last one in Florida, I had a total of 20 hours sleep for that whole period of time. <laughs> I mean, just these things, if you put them all together, you just get a, a, even a glimpse of what you went through that week. And yeah, the sleep on top of the, uh, the, the enduring kind of challenges is, is really something. Yeah. And the temperature switches too. So, I mean, we, we landed in, in, in South Africa, uh, sorry, actually in Cape Town, not Portland, but we landed in Cape Town, and it was 28, 30 degrees Celsius. When we, when we left South Africa, when we landed in Antarctica, it was minus 20 degrees Celsius. So, you know, bang, and, and you hit, you hit the, you hit Antarctica, you do the marathon, uh, you obviously get out, it's, it's minus 20 degrees. I mean, but by far, it was the most amazing um, place of, of all of them. So it was absolutely the highlight. And obviously being the first one too, it's very exciting. But then, yeah, you know, when you're told, don't don't overheat and sweat too much because you'll get hypothermia and die in ten minutes. You it's, you get a bit of reality about it. But yeah, the the temperature swings of forty odd degrees between going from Cape Town to um, Antarctica and then you know back to Cape Town um, was uh, was extreme. And then after that, we we're pretty lucky. Everything was pretty warm most of the way. Of course, if you didn't have enough to think about already, the uh, temperature changes really must have uh, had an impact as well. Well, I say, I say it was pretty lucky because as an Australian, the hotter the better for me. But yeah, there were there were a few people that didn't <laughs> like the high 20s for Western Australia and Dubai and others. So yeah. And Scott, as if your challenge wasn't epic enough, you also had an average time you wanted to hit and a reason behind that as well, didn't you? Yeah, look, I, I think like all these things and um, you go out and you want to set a target or a goal. I'm a goal-orientated person, so I have a target, whether it's, you know, how many days I'm going to run a time. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be anything. I think, you know, as, just as a sidebar, I think one of the greatest things I've seen someone ever do is write the book. And I wish I'd done it. It's like couch to 5k or couch to 10 kilometers and setting someone little goals to step through. And that's what I do with my coaching. But for me, because that's how I've done it. So yeah, my goal was to run the um, seven marathons in um, under 28 hours. So an under four hour average um, per marathon. Um, Primarily because, you know, I ran my very first marathon at, at around 3.58 um, and I hadn't run over four hours for a marathon. So I didn't want to start now. So there was a bit of an egotistical thing there. But then the other important, the probably the more important thing about it was the reason I was raise, raising money for Breast Cancer Haven. It's a, it's a charity that looks after both male and females that have had breast cancer and then looks after them in the post-diagnosis rehab type situation when in between going through um you know having chemo and radiation and the average amount of time a person goes through to um come out the other side and get over breast cancer was actually the 28 hours of chemo and radiation therapy so it became a goal in regards to trying to beat that because uh, my thought process was look if i can survive 28 hours running a marathon knowing and seeing visibly what see people going through chemo and radio is it's a it's a it's a target and it's a self motivation it's also one of those things when it gets tough you realize you don't have it as hard as somebody else so that was that was that, that was key there um in regards to that so and we and we were successful which was great we were successful it was great we and and the best part of that was we were able to raise um 20,000 pounds for the charity which uh, which equates to uh, 20 people, you know, predominantly females going through 
what Breast Cancer Haven offers around that. Um, and I was also very lucky that through the donations, a lot through the the financial community that, that we all know and well, that um, someone set out there a challenge, a couple of people set out a challenge that if I was able to finish on the podium, which I was lucky enough to do to finish in third place, um, they would uh, double their donation. So again, as you went through the week, there were multiple motivations to to keep you going, to keep the to help with the mental toughness of it. Yeah, well, Scott, we'll get into it. But just to say at this point, on top of completing the challenge, also so much credit to you for contributing to such a great cause and raising awareness as well. I really take my hat off to you. So well done. No, thank you. And again, look, at the end of the day, it, it, yeah, there was a couple of things it was about. It was a challenge I wanted to do. Um, as I said, personally, I'm the selfish, selfish part of it. It was, you know, I, I pretty much win every drinking game I compete against anybody in now because I say I've had a beer <laughs> on every continent and they can't. But, you know, the underlying thing was why I started looking for it was actually giving back to, um, to a charity that, that had helped uh, that helped people around my life out a lot. That's fantastic. Uh, I, I bet this is a, a real story topper as well, isn't it? Anyone that ever brings up they've been for a 10K run at lunchtime, then you're uh, suddenly pulling out, I had seven marathons in seven continents. Yeah, well, it's an interesting conversation, but I think like, I mean, like I said at the start, it was like, I know when I went out for my first 5K run, training up for a marathon, I, you know, I, I, at that point in time, the only thing I was running for was last orders at the bar. So I know where everybody starts. And it is it is that process. So I think it's you know whatever anybody does, I think it's fantastic. You know, even you know someone said to me, "I said, look at all these things, these color runs and stuff, all these gimmicks." And I said, "If it gets another hundred people out doing exercise, then it's fantastic. I don't care what the gimmick or the motivation is, whether it's a tough mother or a, a charity or whatever. If it's if it's getting people out physically exercising, which helps your mental well being, then it's great." Yeah, and I, and I know you're working on some projects that we can talk about later. You know, making sports clubs and coaches more accessible. But while we're talking about getting off the couch and getting into exercise, let's see if we can give people some motivation, shall we? Let's really dig into the story of your adventure. Now, I looked at an article in a, in a runner magazine you sent me uh, about your adventure. And in a photo of the very first race in Antarctica, you were at the front of the pack as the race begins, which says even more about your character, Scott. But what I want to ask is what was that first race like? And were there any points in, in that race, uh, you know, the first of a seven series where you thought, what have I got myself into here? Yeah, I mean, I guess pretty much stepping off the plane into minus 20 something degrees, I was like, okay, let's hope we can start running soon enough. But even down to the logistics of that, I mean, like I had to explain to my employers and my at work at that point in time that why I wasn't shaving for, for nearly a month beforehand because of having to run in the wind chill factor down there. So I had to, so I was growing this beard for a month or so beforehand, which obviously as soon as I got, as soon as I got back on the plane, I shaved off heading back into South Africa. But the the logistics and the challenge around um, Antarctica more so than anything were, were the biggest, were the biggest part of it. Cause we, you know, we land this plane, we step out. Uh, we literally go into these, like these containers that it could be converted to bunk beds and that to rest and get ready for an hour or so. And then you you just lay it up in clothing, so you've got multiple layers. You know, you're running in trail shoes, and you and the run is literally around um, the landing strip where the planes land. Because if if you look at some of the pictures, you see the the two planes in the background there. Um, I guess at that point in time, no one really knew each other that well because there was a lots of different people from around the world coming together. So there was still that looking at each other out of the corner of your eye and eyeing everybody up, and you know, away you go. So. Early on, it was still just very much on your own. But um, yeah, I mean, if, if any asked me of all the marathons I've done, which would be the most unique, it would definitely be that one, just because it's just the everything you see and you think of when you see Antarctica is exactly what it is. It's just like the white 
the white everywhere and as flat as I could see. And um, yeah, and then, you know, running in minus 20 plus degrees and then, you know, one way down the course, the wind would be behind you. You turn around and come into your face and all of a sudden, you know, it'd be 10, 15 degrees colder because of the windshield factor and you couldn't sweat. You know, so it was, but yeah, I mean, again, it was fat. It was a six loop course. Every, every marathon uh, during the week was a looped course. So it, so this one was probably easier than the others because it was the first one, but you, you were always saw people and running with people and things like that. But yeah, in regards to it being, um, it being the most memorable, it was in regards to an experience of running a marathon. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the other people that were, were on the race as well, and probably people you weren't so familiar with at the start, but you know, how did uh, the relationships develop over time? And are, and are they still people you're in contact with now? Yeah, I was, I was literally doing a chat over the weekend with, uh, two of the guys, the guy, the guy that finished fourth and a guy that finished fifth, one's in New York, one's in uh, Colorado. And we got on the chat. We'd actually, we were actually all meeting up to do a trail run in, in the Rockies in August uh, before um, COVID-19 kicked in. So it is that, is that bond because you actually, you actually live in a bubble for a week in all honesty, because one of the questions we, I got asked a lot was how did you survive jet lag? And, and there is technically no jet lag because you're never in one place long enough. You know, we flew um, 24,000 miles over the week. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it was only a couple of hours, two and a half, three hours sleep per night. And you are in this bubble because you literally go uh, get on a plane, get off somewhere, get changed, run, refuel, rest, get on a plane and repeat. So you never actually got jet lag because you're always just in your own time zone. But because you're in a, because you're in that bubble with those people, you're the only people that sort of experience it. And, and one of the things I've, I've mentioned in, at the end of the article, which I was, uh, that, um, I was lucky with, cause I obviously gone through doing, you know, Ironman and, and big sporting events. He's trying to fill There's a, a, quite a few of the people from the group had a little bit of trouble with what we referred to as re-entry after the seven days, because you suddenly step off a plane, finish a race, and you're just like any other human being. No one has any concept of what you've done. And very few people would understand if they hadn't done it. I mean, I think one of the funniest stories I told him what happened is the morning after I'd finished the last race, I got up early and it was on South Beach. Um, and I went for a walk, just trying to keep the legs moving, went for a walk along along the beachfront there. And I was miles away, wasn't paying attention. And all of a sudden I hear from the background, I hear um, a group of voices saying, excuse me, could you move out of the way, please? We're trying to run here. And I turn around and there's half a dozen elderly, there's half a dozen elderly citizens out for their six, you know, six bus morning run. And obviously I was walking in the middle of the track. So they shooed me out of the way thinking, I don't know, maybe I was just some, some drunk guy walking home from the night before. So having, it just, it just really, it really hit home in regards to what I'd done versus what the rest yeah. of the world doesn't really get and understand. So it brought you back to reality very quickly, but people, people like had, some of the guys had a lot of trouble because they didn't, uh, mentally because they didn't get why people didn't understand and i was lucky enough having done some other races that people were like well okay that's great you're stupid you know let's let's move on but, uh it is that bubble that 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 creates those bonds and those friendships and that's and that's why yeah there's a lot i mean i met one of the guys 12 months ago when we went and did the the goofy challenge in in florida where you run a 5k 10k half marathon and a marathon each day uh we're due to do this other one so yeah you do make friends for life um, and you you stay close with them because of that 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 experience that not a lot of other people have had.
yeah, well, like you said, uh, more people have been into space than have completed this. So really puts into perspective what kind of uh, task and endeavor this was. Or, or, or how, how silly we are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Scott, uh, don't think I didn't notice that you said you'd keep in contact with the fourth and fifth place, but not the, the first and second. <laughs> you still have it against them. No, there was actually a funny, actually, there's a good story behind that. And it's the story about, you, you just mentioned about coming together. Um, there was a, a guy that won it and he was like, uh, I think he was averaging around a three hour marathon. He, another Irish guy, but he was like a ex-international athlete type thing. And he was just ahead of us. And then, and again, another Englishman who was about an hour, half an hour ahead of us all. But that, that next group of us at about, you know, third, fourth and fifth ran most of the runs together. And, you know, we got to sort of jumping around here, but we got to the fifth race in Lisbon and it was a wet, miserable night running on the boardwalk in Lisbon. And it was actually the turning point. While it was the hardest race, it was also the turning point of where the group sort of come together. And it was it was decided it was an unwritten, unsaid, unwritten rule that we would run as a group to keep everybody going. And people fell over and we'd stop and pick them up. You know, people weren't well, but we ran as a group. Um, and I guess why why I, I mention and talk about it is the guy that finished fourth, Josh, who's actually the guy I probably stay closest with, was literally only like a minute or two av- overall behind me, right? Wow. And a couple of and a couple of those different races, and 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 as you get to know, Philippe, we had this conversation, and I explained to some of the guys when we talked about what we we're doing about you know if I finish on the podium, you know people will double the charity, and on the last couple of races. There was an opportunity on a couple of occasions that Josh could have run away and easily put five, 10 minutes into me. He was stronger in one of the races than I was, but he didn't. He stayed running with me because to, to him, it was more important that A, we finished as a group, but B, that money I was going to raise for the charity um, was going to get doubled. So we ran together and, and, and it's those sort of selfless things that people do that that bonds you to become great mates with this guy. And you know, I always mention that story whenever I'm talking about it because you know, it, it just shows great character of people and, and, and why why your bonds and friendships with these guys, these guys will continue. Yeah, it really does. That's incredible. I mean, you, you know, the kind of people that do this are so competitive uh, to, to do that. I mean, like I say, if you're the kind of person that signs up for this, then you're probably the kind of person that finishing on the podium is important to. So that really is a selfless act. Yeah. And he's, and he's a financial bankruptcy lawyer. So it goes against every part of his nature. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the fifth race is one of the toughest moments. So let, let's move on to that. And, and we'll split this up into talking about the, the mental and physically tough aspects. But on the physical side, was that fifth one the hardest? Because I, I imagine there's, there's reasons why the first race might be the most difficult and reasons why the seventh uh, might be the most difficult. But which one for you was physically the most testing? I guess each one had, had its different elements. I would, I would have probably say that while... Um... And Antarctica being the first with all those challenges around the weather and the travel and that, it was probably the easiest, again, because it's your first one and it is just an experience and you get wrapped up in the moment. South Africa, the second one was, you were still early enough in it that it was okay. We started to run with a couple of people. I, I sort of ran a little bit out on my own in there. So it was sort of like, okay, that was a, again, hot, great, love it, tick it off, let's move on. Then we hit Perth and Western Australia. And of course, you know, on, on being Australian on my home territory, I thought I'd have to represent there. But that was probably one of the more physical challenging grunts. We sort of arrived in Perth late afternoon, about three, four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, went to the hotel, changed, got ourselves ready and went out to do the lap course starting at about 10, 11 o'clock at night. So these, they were always run at different times. So 
And again, that was like 30 plus degrees there because it was, you know, summertime in Australia. But we're sitting in the hotel lobby about to walk out to go do it. And where the marathon course was, was right next to one of the big cricket stadiums. And they were having a, a, a semi-final of a, the Big Bash 2020 cricket going on. And so it was the first stage where worlds collide. You see all these athletes sitting in the lobby, stretching and getting ready in all their running gear. At the same time, you see all these drunk Australians come through to go to the lobby <laughs> bar after being at a cricket game with KFC buckets on their heads and that, and having to explain the, the sort of things going on there. But I had a bit of trouble on that first race, and that's actually where I started to have trouble uh, with my toenails and, and started to lose them. And I taped my feet up, but I hadn't taped my feet up properly. So my feet started to bleed badly and I had to stop and retake them halfway through the run, which meant I'd lost a bit of time on the guys because I lost about five minutes. So then I pushed harder to catch up. And so by the time I caught up with them uh, to, to sort of try and retain that sub four hour, I'd sort of taken my body to heat and exhaustion that when I finished the race, any bit of any bit of fluid or gel or liquid I put in my body just, you know, it was like a waterfall coming back out. So it was just the... And so I was very, very dehydrated and very down and actually um, put got the, the the medical staff. We actually, they went back to the hotel room and, and we put a, a saline drip, sugar water drip in my arm um, for it. And I was, I was recording videos every night to send home for the charity. And I recorded this video and then I had to go back and redo it and say, okay, just before you watch this, I'm okay. Everything's fine. I'm just a little tired and dehydrated because I, I was like white as a sheet. I had this drip coming out of my arm and people not knowing would go, oh my God, especially family and friends, like, what is he doing to himself? But that that sort of puts you behind on your calorie count because then you're always chasing up to uh, the thing. And that that's that gets really hard. That's that's the cal keeping the calories going gets really hard. I think someone did the sums on it and we said, oh, if you what we did, we we burned around over the seven rounds like twenty eight thousand calories just in the exercises over the week. So Wow, yeah. So you're basically at a deficit the whole time. So you can't obviously get enough calories in to to make up for that, can you? Yeah, and I think I said there was one part there. I think we we're getting on a plane somewhere. I said there's no such thing as a bad calorie. And I have a picture that I sent back of me sitting on the plane with a with um, like a freeze dried meal, um, <laughs> a Gatorade, and a glass of champagne because they gave you a glass of champagne. <laughs> And it was like, yeah, all calories were equal. It doesn't matter. So everything everything got eaten and drunk at that point in time. So it was just literally whatever you could put your hands on. So. Yeah, of course. That, that's your fuel for the next day, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so Australia was pretty tough. Um, we hit Dubai was okay. Lisbon mentally was very tough, as I mentioned, because it was completely opposite the weather um, about that. And, and by that stage, Lisbon's the fifth one is that you're, you're sort of over halfway, but you're still got two more to go. So mentally, that was a, that was a really tough one for us all there. Um, and then by that stage, yeah, your, your body just hates you anyway. So it does just become a mental game. It knows what's going to happen. And it's just like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to give it's going to be another four hours, just deal with it. And that's when the mental side of it kicks into a lot more. And that's, that's where the thought process comes back to the charity and what it means for the four hour average or you know, you know, I've, I've just got one hour to go or two hours to go, or I've just to go to finish this next loop. You just go to those different places mentally that keep you going. And did you like that extra pressure element? Because not only, you know, did you have to finish, but you had the extra podium incentive and the average time you wanted to keep to. I mean, what, what does that do to you? Does it take an added mental toll or does it become a driver? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's pressure because you know it's there and you don't want to feel like you you fail. Uh, first and foremost was to finish all seven. So I was never going to do anything that would have put myself in danger of not finishing that I could control. But then it, it became more motivation than pressure. It's so like, okay, let's be honest. You're having this amazing experience running in all these different countries around the world. Yes, you're raising money. Your body's going to hurt for a week, 10 days, but you haven't survived breast cancer. You haven't had to go through the the chemotherapy and the radiation to that. You haven't had to see and, and, and suffer that way. So it's all relative. So it, it becomes a motivation, not a pressure. I mean, I've always, like I said, I've always tried to compete at the top level of sports, wherever I, whatever I do. So you sort of got to turn those dials to motivation, not to, not to, not to pressure or not to succumbing to the, the environment you're being bigger than what, what is, what is really happening around you. And you said you've always had this mentality, but were there things that you took away from this experience or, or learned about yourself that you didn't know before? Yeah, I think I was, I, I came out of it going, um, that if you reevaluating it, if you, when you look at something to start with, you look at like a seven, 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 this is ridiculous. It's epic. There's no way it's going to be done, but you learn to break things down and you learn that even if things go wrong, it's not the end of your day. Even though I, you know, I got bad blisters and had to, I was still able to get up and finish the marathon, even though I needed to have a, a drip. I was, I was still had the physical and mental fortitude to get up and do something next day. And I think a lot of that mental toughness and a lot of that, resilience that you learn about through sports and you partaking whether it be a team sport or an individual sport i've brought across into my work life managing teams my own experiences and just talking to people that look even when things go wrong even when a system shuts down or or you know something goes wrong it's not the end of it okay it's a process you pick yourself up you find out what's going on and you move through so you calmer heads prevail and that's sort of what I, that's the big thing from my sporting life I've learned that even if in an Ironman, you know, you lose your goggles in a swim or you get a flat tire, it doesn't mean your day's over. It means you may lose a bit of time, but you still have a goal to achieve at the end of the day. And, and, and bringing that across to, to my, to my work life um, has, has really made a difference early on in my career. I remember one of my senior managers used to refer to me almost like as a, as a battlefield general, I would, I would find a problem, solve it in five minutes and move on with it. Whereas, and that was actually, it was a, it was a, a development point he had with me. It was like, no, sometimes there are more than one ways you should stop, pause and take other thing. And I think I've learned that through, learned to take that on board, but I've learned that through, through my sport and the long distance stuff to realize that, yeah, you don't have to get everything done in one second and solve everything in a second. And it's okay. Even if something goes wrong, it doesn't mean it's the end of something. So it's that, again, just that, that ability to look at something differently because you've had an experience in a different arena as opposed to a business arena or a, a sports arena or a social arena. It's just be blurring the, blurring the lessons you learn across each. Uh, well, Scott, we'll finish up with some questions that we're actually going to ask every uh, guest on, on this series. But I think to, to really wrap things up, uh, I'd love to ask you, you know, what was it like that moment where you crossed the finish line of the final and seventh race? So I think the the great thing with that is, it, it, and it happened in that last race, there's a photo of five of us coming across the finish line together at the same time. Um, and uh, I, I got to say, there was a photo taken of us in front and then someone only just recently, actually only just recently sent me a photo of someone had taken a photo of the six of us from behind. And it was the light and the shadow and I'm certain someone had got very arty with it. But it was just a picture of that 
camaraderie and, and and a group of people can do anything if they end up sticking and working together and that you know the lessons i learn and the lessons i share out of it and i've, I've given um some presentations to my daughter's school and others talking to young kids about this and 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 um, adults in some ovation stuff is is that if you break things down nothing is as bad as it seems good or bad nothing is nothing is as hard as it's going to be and that really your only limitations is is the self-belief you have on yourself and and what you think or believe you can you can do to make a difference and that's why i mentioned earlier about you know the person that came up with the couch to 5k it's fantastic everybody is at a different level where they start and and just being able to take that first step out the front door whether it's to start a new job whether it's to make a phone call to uh, uh, an old friend or to you know to start exercise the hardest part is that first step but once you do it it's the fear is, is harder than the actual reality of doing these things uh, pardon me at this point which is we were actually doing a video rather than a podcast because i'm looking at the pictures that you're referring to and your face really tells the story you can really see <laughs> the pain and maybe that answers the question of uh, how you felt during each race yeah 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 the uh the black and white one on uh, the article with me leaning over is finishing in australia and i think it was i was just realizing what was about to happen with all the fluids in my body and i was like yeah you better move away now <laughs> Well, I'm not going to thank you for that insight quite as much, but <laughs> that's a great way to wrap it up. And uh, let's, Scott, let's get into those questions then that I'm going to ask all our guests. And the first one is, who from within uh, financial services has inspired you? So so when we, we, we've talked about this and I, I've done a little bit of thinking about this, I, I guess I look at it a little differently because my financial career in Europe started when I was in my 30s because I've worked in Australia and I've worked in infrastructure, sell side and buy side. I sort of haven't had one necessarily one person that I've looked up to. I've learnt good and bad from every one of my managers and senior managers. But I guess what the one thing I was chatting to a friend last week about this, you know, I started working at the stock exchange in 98 and I can probably count on one hand half a dozen people that I've stayed in contact with throughout my whole career that those people that, that those people have, have had the same ethos I have about staying in contact with them. And I guess I look at those sort of people as sort of my inspiration. It's like the people that are willing to maintain a relationship and contact with you because even though you've worked together and you don't work together anymore, there's a there's a benefit to that relationship and both people see it. Because, you know, we all go through this job and I'm guilty of it as well. You say, oh, yeah, someone moves on. Good luck. Let's meet up soon. We'll speak to you. And, and quite often people drift. And the only time people come back together is when somebody wants something or someone's starting looking for a job or they start to work together. And I was thinking, and those, those are the sort of the people, and some of those have been my managers, um, but those are the sort of people that I, that I, I take inspiration from, are those people that have sort of have that same ethos that this is a good relationship I have with this person. This is a person I want to stay in contact with. And they reach out to you and you see it a lot now. Like someone I, I work with 20 years ago, once a month, you know, last couple months, how are you, how's the family, how's everything going? And those, those are sort of the people that I hold inspiration to because they hold me to a higher standard. Um, and I want to want to aim and be better like that. Great. And where has inspiration from outside of your professional life come from? My own laziness and catching myself in the mirror when I realized I hadn't been exercising for a while to start with. I, I, I have spent a lot of time. You know, the funny thing is I spent a lot of time reading motivational books, looking at the statements and things like that. And I found uh, for me personally, I found that a lot of those things were great in the moment, but didn't have the sustainability of an everyday change. And so, you know, sort of that that motivation and drive has come at that, that come from 
understanding myself better and understanding, like I say, you know, having a plan around my three buckets. That's what I always talk about, my three buckets and making certain those buckets. So I think I've learned that I've got to trust myself and my, my own choices and judgments. I, I still reach out and, yeah, you know, I love this, you know, the statements of, you know, you know, pain is just weakness leaving the body and all things like that that get you going in the moment and things like that. But the sustainability is, is basically about looking back at your life at the period of time and saying, looking back and saying you've done something, you've left something behind. And you say it, it's a better place that you're leaving than when you came into it. And uh, in addition to those kind of nuggets of wisdom there, if I had to ask you, if there's one life lesson that you could pass on to others, what would it be? I think the ability and the trust in yourself not to be afraid to put yourself out there, whether it's again, whether it's about trying something new, uh, a sport, wanting to do a marathon, wanting to do a triathlon, trying to take up a new hobby or something. Or even just, even just, you know, what I've learned. And funny enough, I've learned from more so like spending time with my ten-year-old daughter in 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 through COVID nineteen is is not being afraid to put yourself out there and ask questions. You know, I think when we're when we're younger, we have we don't we don't have fear of what other people think or how other people are going to react. And I guess as we grow up and we go through schools and colleges and jobs, we lose that. We lose that um, ability not to worry because we get pigeonholed into things, we get structured into things, we get graded on things, and we get worried about what other people think. Um, I think what I've what I've learnt and, and reflecting on since the seven 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 and talking to the kids and spending time with it is is I had always thought, oh, I shouldn't ask those questions, I shouldn't say those things, I shouldn't try that thing because I don't want people to think I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what I can say. And I guess my 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 point that I come back to with that is you know, almost regaining the skills we have as a 10 year old kid about not knowing what failure is, not knowing and not worrying about what failure is and, and not worrying about trying something. And I guess that's, that's, that's the, the journey I've gone on to since doing the 777 and, and, and reflecting on it is like, I'm going to go back and act like I'm a 10 year old again. Uh, I get told quite often, I have the maturity of it, but I'm going to go back and act and ask and do those things and say, look, I don't know what this is. What is, how do I do this? And just put yourself out there and you'd be surprised it's not as bad as we've been, you know, we've been programmed or tradition to think going through education, schooling and work. You know, I've always found since I've since I've taken this leap that the more I do it, the more people are doing it back. So, you know, all I'd say is don't be afraid to to take that first step. Yeah, Scott, thanks for uh, those messages. In addition to, to telling your wonderful story, uh, can I just uh, finish off by asking you, yeah, what are you working on at the moment? You know, there's something there's something under an NDA at the moment, so I can't really discuss about that. But I have taken up a. A few things that, that, that when you hear about it, you'll understand why that I've, I've got more business acumen involved in the health and well-being place than I did previously. So I'm a I'm a non-exec director on a health and well-being consultancy firm called Yoke, which is about balancing busy business professional lives and understanding sleep patterns and everything that goes with it and, and putting skills around um, senior executives to be better efficient and and but, you know, better balance their buckets as I, as I keep referring to. So that's very exciting, helping that firm grow and, and spending some time giving them some advice. But also, you know, my, my other piece of work is I'm a co-founder of a company called Active Place, which is, I think you probably best, best it's like a health and well-being um, community where you want to help people inspire and grow. And I guess it's like a LinkedIn meets TripAdvisor type thing for the health and well-being. So it's, I found from my own experience when I started doing these races that I would spend 10 to 15 hours 
finding a race, sorting out accommodation, working out how to travel, speaking to people about it. And, and the platform with Active Pace that we've built over the last 12, 18 months, and it goes live in August um, with 40 odd partners, is about bringing that community together with a, in one trusted place and allowing people to identify if they want to go, you know, if they want to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro or they want to do one of the 5K places, 5K runs, or they want to maybe do their first Ironman. It's this platform where all these people that do all these things have come together to show, you know, it's it's a source of inspiration and growth in one place because everybody now searches Yahoo or searches Google and it all sort of gets dissipated. But if you bring it all together in one health and well-being um, and an active community, it really does make a difference. So yeah, we've we've great. We've got a bunch of investors. Uh, we are our CEOs based in California. Our um, head of marketing's Australia. I'm over here. There's another half a dozen or so people, and yeah, we we've got 40 partners that are providing content. And that's everybody from ex-Olympians to nutritionists to people that train Formula One drivers to swim coaches, small and medium companies that are looking to grow and expand, but have that same that same belief that we do of making active people more active by giving them more opportunities and, and more things to look at. So yeah, August launch, North American launch in Oceania, North American launch towards the end of the year. And, and you'll see some stuff coming out of it in Q3 and Q4 about getting on and joining it. So um, yeah. fully expect to see you on it. On it on <laughs> I'll check it out. We'll have, you, we'll have you signed up to a marathon before you know it. <laughs> Scott, after this conversation, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to run through walls. I've been tying the running shoes <laughs> as I've been talking. Uh, you be, well, it's, it's, it's recorded in the airways now, so you can't back out of it. So there you go. I'll use my lunch break. Don't, don't worry. Just like you said, fit it into the routine during this lockdown period. I guess I, probably the one other thing I'd like to mention quickly, and, and it's, I want to mention it because you guys at the Trade and Globe Custodian have been a big part of it as well, is the work. Uh, I've joined the board of um, HFC, which is Health for Children, which is helping uh, children that are in really bad circumstances growing up. And you know, obviously, we have some challenges now with COVID-19 and that. But that's also been a part of it. So what I'm doing is about giving back to a different area. So it's not just always about an athlete or a physically fit person. These are, you know, our vulnerable youngest in the community that we try to do a lot for. And, you know, you guys at, at the trade and the global cost have been fantastic coming on as the partner and supporting that. So that's another part of it, but also, you know, a shout out for that because that's important. And, and I thank you for the work you guys do with that. So it's greatly appreciated. Yeah, something our publications are really uh, pleased and, and proud to partner with uh, a great cause. And we were really lucky to have Rob Davis, the founder of the charity, speak at our Global Custodian Awards in New York. And that was quite a, a moving and, uh, again, an inspiring story for our audience. Yeah, fingers crossed we get out of this COVID thing pretty uh, quickly enough to still be able to hold our gala dinner at the end of November, <laughs> uh, which is the big fundraising, which is our big fundraising piece. But, you know, safety first about everybody. So, um, but yeah, no, that that's that's a, that's a great part I like giving back to and that um, is for a real worthy cause. And always happy to talk more about that if... Um, if anybody wants to know about it. Great, and I'm sure if anyone wants to know more about HFC or any other projects you're working on, uh, your, your door's always open to uh, talk to people about that. Absolutely, no, we greatly appreciate that. Oh, come through you guys, you guys, I said you guys are a great, a great marquee partner for us globally as well, so that's great. Well, you uh, you said it all, and uh, I, I loved hearing the story, and uh, I'm hoping all our, our listeners did too, and you know, the way you told it was brilliant, I felt like I was there in Antarctica or in the, in the heat, uh, no matter what it was, although I, I, I tried not to, um, picture myself in the moment so you're talking about the IV drips and the toenails that's for sure yeah, yeah. I think the statement is I always say is I have a very short-term relationship with my toenails we've accepted that so it's uh, part and parcel of it away <laughs> what, a, what a note to leave it on but Scott again thanks again for your time and, uh, and telling your story fantastic thank you very much appreciate the opportunity and uh, the ability to share the message about everything really great thank you 
Thanks for listening today and thanks again to our sponsors Smartstream who have supported us through this series along with their clients and even as I've discovered myself, frontline workers through donations they've made during this period. If you like what you've heard today, make sure you subscribe and keep an eye out each week for new episodes or listen in on globalcustodian.com. Thanks again.